welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dmitry Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Daniel Treisman, professor of political science at the University of California, who specializes in Russian politics and economics. And he has just written a terrific article in Foreign Affairs titled, What Could Bring Putin Down? Where he argues that a collapse of the regi- regime is much more likely than a palace coup. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Daniel, let's jump right in, and maybe we'll take um, the first part of your argument uh, um, and, and, and dive deeper into it. Why do you think that uh, an internal palace coup by some of the members of the Putin entourage, like the military or the intelligence services, is not very likely? Well, it's just very difficult to organize these things, especially against a leader who has prepared uh, so thoroughly uh, to avoid uh, being overthrown in in any kind of uh, conspiracy or coup. So Putin has for years arranged uh, the internal security arrangements uh, in such a way as to make it very difficult for members of the high security elite, the Suleviki, uh, to coordinate among themselves uh, in any way outside uh, his observations. So uh, there's some great research by uh, three scholars who did a network analysis, which I mentioned in the piece, uh, a network analysis of the 100 most influential Russians, as judged by a newspaper, and mapped out all their informal ties. If they were uh, together participating in a charity, in sports organizations, if they had common family members and so on, And uh, it was striking to see that some of the leading security figures there uh, really had almost no informal uh, links to other members of the top uh, security and political elite. So, for instance, Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, the security service, uh, was was linked only directly to Putin in informal ways. Um, The head of the Interior Ministry, uh, Kalakoltsev, was uh, linked only directly to Moscow Mayor Sabyanin. Uh, So, and and that may have been deliberately uh, engineered uh, because Putin watches those things and uh, is conscious that if uh, members of his higher uh, court, if you will, uh, are talking to themselves, talking among themselves uh, out of his presence, uh, then they may come up with ideas that he doesn't like. So well, and he probably learned from, and he probably learned from uh, the Yeltsin era, right, where the Yeltsin family, uh, which is not just his family, but the loose organization of oligarchs around his daughter and um, related parties were in control of pretty much everything and, and everyone who was in power was in some ways linked to them through patronage or even uh, family ties. And he probably decided to uh, put together a very different system so um, as to not have um, anyone have that much control in in the government, right? I think he's very conscious of of this for sure. And uh, I think he monitors the informal relations. And of course, the security services are probably helping him and volunteering all this information to discredit their rivals. So another key aspect of uh, of the top Kremlin structure is that he's created these additional security services. Uh, I mean, there, there are various uh, rival security services, FSB, GRU, of course, pretty well known, uh, the FSO, the Roskvardia, the National Guard. Uh, they have overlapping responsibilities uh, and they're all jealous of each other. They're all competing for funds, competing for uh, support from Putin and uh, reporting on each other. Uh, so the idea that some subset uh, of high uh, and, and the army we have, I haven't even mentioned, they, they're quite outside this. They have traditionally been uh, very much outside politics in the Soviet period and since then, with a few exceptions, which uh, usually went badly, like the 1991 uh, attempted coup, uh, which I think, if it did anything, convinced the army that getting involved in these conspiracies was a bad idea. 
Um, so the army is also highly mon- closely monitored. Uh, the FSB uh, has a very uh, extensive uh, network of uh, informants. Uh, well, not just that, own, but, you know, in many ways, Putin has gone back to the old Soviet era where you have political commissars that are now embedded in uh, military right. units, right, that are monitoring the military commanders and morale and, and uh, any sign of insurrections building up in those units in the way that, you know, we, we had <laughs> uh, during the Stalin era. So um, uh, he, he's clearly worried about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think the most serious uh, agents uh, doing this inside the military are, are the FSB agents uh, or informants planted there. But of course, yes, political uh, uh, observers also. Uh, so I think he gets a lot of information. Uh, he watches closely for signs of disloyalty. Uh, and uh, everybody knows this. Uh, the officers in the army know this. Uh, everybody around him is, is I'm sure, very conscious uh, that they may fall under suspicion, uh, even if they're just meeting uh, a lot. And, and this, yeah, you mentioned the late 90s. Uh, I think back to the late Soviet period when Gorbachev uh, was getting these reports from his security chiefs uh, before the August coup about uh, Yeltsin and uh, the then mayor of Moscow and some of Gorbachev's own aides, like Alexander Yakovlev at that time, who were meeting, uh, and this was portrayed by the by the security services to Gorbachev as a conspiracy against him. So there's a long tradition of security services reporting and even exaggerating or manufacturing uh, the appearance of conspiracies. Uh, to justify themselves, uh, to to appear effective to the top bosses. Uh, so all of that creates a, a climate of mutual suspicion in the top uh, state elite, uh, which makes it very difficult to organize a coup. And, and you make another terrific point that I thought was just so fantastic about Kadyrov, the head of Chechnya, and Prigozhin, this guy that's in charge of Wagner Group. Um, And there's a lot of, I think, uh, uh, unhealthy obsession with not just those two folks, but other nationalistic uh, propagandists on Russian television um, that um, are out there urging uh, a much harder line on the war and, and to commit war crimes against Ukrainians. And uh, people get very excited about this, thinking that these people are actually um, creating a, a sort of right-wing opposition to Putin. But I think you in the article highlight very well that none of these people pose any sort of threat to him. And in fact, uh, he is encouraging um, this type of extremist rhetoric and has done so f- uh, throughout his rule because it allows him to be positioned as much more reasonable in comparison, right? Well, I think at, at this point, uh, and of course, it's very hard to judge this. We could all be wrong. But how I interpret this is that at this point, uh, it really serves Putin's purposes uh, to have uh, extreme nationalist voices criticizing the top military command for failures in Ukraine, uh, recommending more extreme options uh, like uh, more intensive bombardment. He's, he's now moved uh, to, to this, but intensive bombardment of civilian areas in Ukraine. Uh, even, uh, you know, reinforcing Putin's hints about the possible use of tactical nu- nuclear weapons. I think it's useful for Putin uh, to have that kind of drumbeat in, in the background uh, to, as you say, make him seem just a little bit uh, more moderate uh, or restrained uh, and to create the I would say, illusion that he's being driven in some sense by nationalist factions within Russia or within the elite. Um, I, I don't see much evidence that Putin is being pushed towards positions uh, that he is not uh, or he was not uh, himself inclined to favor. Uh, and uh, about Prigozhin and Kadyrov, 
I think if we look at who they are and uh, how come they're in this top Kremlin group, it's entirely because of uh, Putin's support uh, against the uh, wishes. I mean, both of these guys are extremely unpopular with many other top members of of, uh, Putin's elite. Uh, So against the wishes of many others, uh, Putin has raised them up and uh, rewarded them for loyalty and for being useful uh, in certain uh, unpleasant ways. They give him options, right? So Prigozhin is a way to pressure the military by having this uh, external structure outside the military that could be used uh, you know, before this war in various ways in Syria and uh, Africa and so forth to achieve uh, objectives and, and now directly in the conflict in Ukraine with Kadyrov. The FSB hates him, right? The, you know, Chechnya is pretty much uh, uh, off limits to the FSB, the all-powerful security service that can't even go into part of the Russian territory because Kadyrov treats it as a complete fiefdom. But it gives Putin's optionality to um, have these people do things that uh, would be perhaps uh, more difficult to do within the con- uh, constraints of, of the Russian state, right? And, and would be deniable. Yeah, Kadyrov is useful to Putin also in domestic politics uh, to scare people. Uh, uh, He can say, well, okay, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he lets people understand if you don't like me, then, well, uh, you can have Kadyrov. Uh, Absolutely unrestrained, brutal form of rule. Um, Prigozhin is useful because, as you said, well, mercenaries can be useful and uh, they don't even have to be all that successful because if they fail, you can just sit, just deny any responsibility, deny any state connection. Um, but they have been quite effective, especially in uh, in uh, remote parts of Africa. Um, and uh, they had some success in the Ukrainian fighting in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, so... Putin likes to have options. He likes to go outside the official uh, command structure. He likes to have, uh, as they're called in Russia, curators uh, responsible for particular tasks or or areas of concern uh, to give them uh, quite unlimited uh, powers um, and have them report just directly to him. So Prigozhin and, and Kadyrov are his tools for particular sets of tasks. So you've made a very compelling case that a palace coup is unlikely. So if it is unlikely, how might Putin's regime end, um, assuming it doesn't end with um, death of natural causes? Um, uh, You know, this is, of course, really important because um, I've been saying publicly for a while now that the the only way that this conflict uh, ends is with a likely change of regime in Moscow or um, uh, a um, uh, secession of support by the West, particularly military support coming from the United States for Ukraine uh, that would prevent Ukraine from prosecuting this war. But other than that, both sides, uh, both Kiev and Moscow, Putin specifically, are very committed to continuing um, this conflict. So what, what, what is the scenario then for Putin's regime collapsing before his uh, natural um, death? Well, just before we get to that, I should say that the research uh, shows that if we look at all periods, uh, coups are actually more likely than other uh, types of uh, of failures of uh, authoritarian regimes. Uh, Most autocrats historically uh, if they've been overthrown, have been overthrown in a coup rather than a revolution. But uh, the so we, we should be aware of the base rate, but the base rate has changed. So in the last uh, 30 years or so, coups have become much less common. Uh, I think now it's under 10 percent uh, of autocrats uh, leave power through coups and uh, revolutions, unrest and and other scenarios have become much, much more common. Um, there's a good article about this in uh, Washington Quarterly from 2014 by uh, Andrea uh, Kendall-Taylor uh, and Erica France that go through the, the data on this. Um, so at this point, it seems to be 
you know, a statistical regularity that coups are less common than other other scenarios. So what what are those other scenarios? Well, it's always hard to uh, to try and get a clear conception of that in advance because they can be very different. They often involve uh, successive interacting mistakes uh, by the incumbent. Uh, what I see as the real vulnerability of the system that Putin has created is first that it's over-centralized. So he's created what's called the vertical of power, uh, a system of, of strict hierarchical subordination uh, with all decisions ultimately made right at the top uh, in the Kremlin. Um, but of course, one person can't decide everything. So in practice, a lot of things get, get kicked down uh, to uh, other top elites uh, and they can be fought out in the courts uh, in policy settings, in the, in the, even in the legislature, occasionally something actually does get decided in the Duma, uh, in business interactions and so on. So a lot does actually get done without Putin, but ultimate authority is in his hands. And uh, when a crucial decision needs to be made, one which affects his security or, or uh important state matters, it has to go all the way up to Putin and nobody will dare uh, make uh, an irrevocable decision or, or take responsibility but, but, for the, the way, decision. That, that, without that's it. not unusual. I mean, even in our system, right, a really critical decision that would affect Biden's reelection chances would not get made without the president, right? So that's that's typical of democratic and autocratic countries. Well, you, you, you can say that, but it is a bit different because under Putin, he doesn't answer to anybody. I mean, Biden would go through a whole process. And if, if we're talking about not uh, not so much uh, internal Democratic Party politics or, or Biden's uh, reelection campaign, but we're talking about national security, for instance, there's a whole interagency process where all, all the different... Uh, ministries that are involved uh, get to, to input. Yes, of course, the final decision is made by the president um, on crucial matters. So you're right, uh, that is similar, uh, but uh, it's really made without any of those, without much of that prior process or uh, any checks and balances uh, of any kind. But don't you, don't you think that there are, certainly there's not an interagency process that works well in Russia, but you would have different constituencies that would be lobbying Putin for different courses of action, and then he would decide which one he thinks is best? Well, yes, the, he's lobbied by many people. And so the point I'm trying to make is not that that system can never work well at all. And ultimately, there has to be a final decision maker for certain things the problem is in Russia, uh, it's for just about everything, uh, unless Putin says, okay, you handle it. Uh, he, he's got to make that decision. And uh, I, I say in the piece, that can work reasonably well at quiet times when there aren't too many uh, crises or non-routine uh, policy matters to decide. But uh, it goes haywire when you're in a situation like a war where you have multiple crises uh, arising simultaneously. And it's not just the war, it's domestic uh, society in Russia too, the economy and so on. So if you have uh, you know, economic problems erupting in Siberia and uh, maybe protests about mobilization in uh, Vladivostok and others in the Caucasus, and you have to deal with uh, reverses on the front in Ukraine, and you have conflicts within the elite, the top generals. Uh, any one person has a limited attention span, a limited bandwidth, and under in incredible pressure, when he has to make all these decisions uh, simultaneously, in real time, urgently, uh, then there's huge potential for mistakes. And what can happen is you make one mistake, and, and that inflames things. And then the crisis needs even more attention and you can't deal with all the other things that are going on. So these mistakes can interact and destabilize things. Um, so, so that's, uh, to me, a more realistic scenario of how things can slip out of control. Now, I, I need to really repeat, this isn't a prediction. 
Uh, I'm not saying that, and, and in fact, I think it's impossible to predict when uh, you know this set of complex interactions might occur. Uh, I think the odds go up when you just increase the burden on this central policymaker, uh, and when there are so many uh, rapidly developing stories that he has to keep track of, and that's not just rapidly developing stories, but uh, unclear stories. Uh, so when you have a war, you have all these things going on at once. Uh, you have uncertainty, you have uh, confusing information, and you need to respond fast. So all that together creates an environment for these uh, kind of factorial channels of mistakes, series of mistakes, uh, which can, I think, uh, well, first of all, it overloads the system. Then what happens? Well, I think uh, this creates a feeling of loss of control throughout much of the elite, and it uh, spreads discontent within society because all these domestic problems aren't getting solved or they're getting made worse or or the bureaucrats are coming to seem more indifferent and arrogant in the way they respond. And so I think this, in this scenario, would gradually or perhaps but even quite fast reduce Putin's popularity. And then everybody would see that happening if the polls were still published uh, and it would match their local experience. And there would be this growing sense that Putin is no longer the old Putin, and I think at that point, you start to get conversations in the Kremlin, including Putin, not behind his back, but including Putin, about what do they do? And with an election scheduled for 2024, do they need to make some sort of, uh, do they need to share power in some sort of way? Or do they need to come up with a candidate that they will try and you know, make really popular right before the election? Um, so things that Putin would not contemplate at a time when his popularity is high and when things are going well, I think, uh, he might find himself forced to, to think about, uh, just in reaction to a deteriorating, uh, environment. Yeah. And, uh, as you were saying this, um, it, it reminded me of the old saving, uh, saying by, I think, Hemingway about how, how do you go bankrupt? Uh, gradually, then very suddenly. Um, but um, let, let me push back on a couple of um, thoughts here um, that you sure. presented. So one is this idea that Putin is a big micromanager um, that I, I don't put words in your mouth, but I think, think you're, you're saying that uh, so many decisions come to him. Uh, you know, I'm not sure there's evidence for that. You know, he delegates a lot in the economy, right? Nabulina, the central right. banker, um, pretty much runs the economy. He doesn't even get that involved because I don't think he understands it well. Um, I'm not sure there's any evidence that he's really micromanaging the war. Uh, no. Obviously, decision to invade was his own, but um, um, the day-to-day battles, I think, is is up to Shoigu and Gerasimov at the MOD. Um, so, and even during COVID, he did this. Um, really interesting thing where he delegated all the hard decisions to the regional uh, governors uh, because he didn't want to look like the guy that's right. going to institute the lockdowns and, and take all the heat. So he's actually prone to delegation, is he not? Yeah, I'm not saying that he's he is actually, and definitely not in normal times, uh, making all those uh, routine decisions. I, I think there is some evidence that he's gotten involved in making military decision making uh, in Ukraine in a way that isn't particularly helpful. For instance, uh, there are these stories, uh, you may have a better sense of their credibility than, than I do, about uh, him refusing to let the generals uh, order a withdrawal from Kherson when they thought it was yeah. the... No, that's absolutely the case. But, but you know, that's a, yeah, that's a political decision to not... Uh, you know, lose territory that you've just annexed, um, a terrible decision. Uh, but I don't think he's micromanaging which village to take and which right. uh, forces to throw at, the, at, at that front. I, I, I think that's right. But um, OK, so I'm not saying that he's micromanaging everything. In fact, in normal times, uh, the way I would describe it is in terms of these two uh, images that, uh, that are discussed in, in Russian political discourse. So first of all, there's... Uh, manual control. So that applies to the decisions when Putin jumps in and uh, 
and and uh, makes a call. Uh, and this is usually on things that uh, he considers important, uh, things where decisions where uh, those below him uh, can't reach agreement, uh, and so on. But there's also so that's when he is involved. Uh, but there's also the mode of what's called uh, autopilot, uh, where uh, he basically lets the uh, factions or the you know, official uh, decision makers, the ministers, the the uh, heads of agencies, and so on, uh, reach a de- reach a decision on on these issues themselves, uh, subject to his final perhaps uh, uh, sign off, but uh, without much of his involvement. So I think there are these two modes, and yes, I think uh, temperamentally he would love it if uh, he could put more on autopilot, uh, but in a war you can't, and, and that's. What's different here? Uh, I'm not saying that he's micromanaging how which villages they they fight in, but there are so many major decisions uh, with huge importance which nobody will dare make without taking it to him. Uh, because if things go badly in the war, because somebody has uh, you know uh, made a crucial decision that that didn't work out well. Uh, they'll be very afraid of, of being punished for that. So I think you have all that. And then then there's all the domestic political stuff. Of course, the political managers will try to deal with those things. But uh, ultimately, you reach a point where you're on ground where Putin uh, uh, wants to make that decision himself. Uh, so as the risk goes up in making these decisions, uh, Putin uh, does want to be the one deciding. Um, and in this environment, the thing is that in all these areas, the risks go up. Uh, so it's just uh, much harder to leave things on or, or he's much less willing to leave things on autopilot. And also he doesn't have competent people. I mean, he's, he's deliberately created uh, a top leadership, uh, which is loyal rather than competent. Um, and uh, as a result, uh if he sees people making mistakes or if he sees things going going wrong, he will jump in and he'll have to do that on in all these different areas simultaneously. So so let's talk about the elections, um, because that, that's a really interesting concept of would uh, someone come to him and discuss with him potentially standing down or uh, nominating someone else. Um, one challenge with that, of course, is that this is exactly what just happened in Kazakhstan a few years ago. Uh, when Nazarbayev, the long-running authoritarian ruler of the country, decided to step down, picked his uh, successor, and that successor ended up turning on him. And, uh, you know, we had uh, just in January before this conflict in Ukraine uh, what appeared to be a coup developing in that that country where Nazarbayev uh, or his supporters may have tried to retake back power. Um, uh, But one of the things that I think Putin learned very well from that episode is that you can't really ever step down. Yes, Yeltsin stepped down and Putin protected him and prevented him from being prosecuted. But can Putin, this paranoid character, um, really trust anyone um, that would protect him, not just against domestic enemies in Russia, but also um, international uh, legal trouble that he may be now in for war crimes in Ukraine and, and what have you? Yeah, there are all these reasons why he wouldn't want to step down. That's absolutely right. But you have to pick the least bad option at the time. And, and so in, in good times, there's no way uh, he would be willing to take those risks. He sees what happened uh, in Kazakhstan. Uh, he, he uh, in, in my judgment, is very aware of the risks uh, of giving up power in in the hope of uh, remaining secure, uh, so no, he will. He, he is absolutely dead set against that. But uh, I can imagine a situation, and, and that's really what this scenario is about. I can imagine a situation in which the other option <laughs> looks so risky that he has to make a really unpleasant choice. So I can only see it happening in that kind of environment where we're staying in power. Uh, you lose the chance of stabilizing things through, uh, you know, putting out there a new face uh, and ruling from behind the scenes. Um, 
given all the dangers of, of, of doing that, uh, he may think that's really his best bet uh, if things deteriorate enough and if his popularity is low and he recognizes that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's not something that I contemplated uh, as at all plausible until we got quite deep into, into this war. But but also the elections are in March of 2024, so about 15, 16 months away here. Um, very cl- close, right, in, in terms of uh, proximity. Um, I'm not sure things are going to get that bad in Russia so soon. Um, and also you're going to have uh, a big election year uh, in, um, um, in both the United States and Ukraine, frankly, because Ukraine is going to have presidential elections and then the United States is going to have them in the fall of 24 as well, where he may be thinking if there is a new president that is less supportive of Ukraine, uh, there might be an opportunity to make a deal and, and uh, um, strike some sort of resolution to this conflict um, um, if the Ukrainians feel like the, um, their uh, military support from the United States will diminish. So I do feel like that might be, I, I appreciate your, your uh, possible projection here, but it might be just too soon for things to get bad enough and for him to lose hope um, that the situation is not salvageable. I could see it happening maybe in 25, 26, but then, of course, there's no election until 2030. So we may be potentially waiting right. quite a while for it, for it to happen, right? Yeah, well, as I said, I'm not predicting that this is going to happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen before the 2024 election or, or even ever. I'm just trying to think through how it could happen and what it's likely to look like if it does. Um, because I, I was thinking about the coup scenario. I saw all these reasons why I think that's unlikely and I don't think they're going to disappear. And then we do know that when authoritarian leaders lose power in this sort of a situation, it's often unexpected. It often comes quite suddenly. It's often in, it, partly stimulated by these external things like a war. I mean, it's, it's not external in the sense that it happened. Uh, it, it was chosen by Putin, of course. But uh, it changes the balance of forces and conditions in so many ways. So... Uh, how these things play out is often uh, unexpected in the details, um, although it makes sense in retrospect. Um, so, again, I'm not predicting. I don't think we can predict uh, something like this at a per- particular point in time. I think if it does happen, then uh, we'll say, wow, I didn't see that exactly coming, but it kind of makes sense. Um, and, uh, I just think of other cases where things have melted down, uh, quite quickly. Uh, so I don't rule out something like that happening before 2024, but as you say, uh, there's no way to know whether it will or not really. I mean, it's just a combination of so many factors, uh, leading to this. Uh, so all we can, I think, say is that the odds have gone up a bit. Uh, but that that doesn't mean that it's going to happen on a particular day. Yeah, as the saying goes, predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> but what what about the third scenario, which is a uh, you know popular uprising revolution? Obviously, very hard to imagine now with this incredibly effective, repressive, uh, authoritarian state that Putin has built, and and a massive internal security services that can clamp down on even the smallest protests right now. But you know, as you write in your article. Uh, meltdowns do happen and security services can lose faith in the regime and can just melt away and disappear as has happened before in many countries. You know, Iran comes to mind in 1979 where the Shah had very repressive apparatus uh, in place and and they all just melted away um, in the face of popular protests and and sort of a general strike um, that was developing in the country. Um, Do you see uh, the potential for that or do you think it's unlikely? Well, again, it depends on all the steps before that. Uh, so um, I mean, what happened in Ukraine, I think, was things melted down in a, very, in, in a way which is quite similar to the scenario I'm sketching out. And then on the last day, the security services, uh, the, the guards that were uh, guarding uh, 
Yanukovych simply disappeared. They reached some sort of deal with the uh, organized protesters outside, uh, and they just they just left. Um, I think, uh, in a for, for something like that to happen in Russia, uh, there's still a long way to go. The security services uh, would have to be confronted by growing uh, discontent. And they would, ha- and and people within the services would have to start to fear for their own security, uh, perhaps fear that uh, the Kremlin would blame them uh, for acts of violence against uh, against civilians, um, and uh, only then can you imagine them losing discipline to the extent that they would no longer protect the Kremlin. Um, now this has happened. So we we saw it in the Arab Spring. Uh, the uh, security services of Gaddafi and of uh, Zine al Abidin uh, in Tunisia uh, were pretty uh, pretty brutal, and uh, they had weaknesses, but they were quite effective as long as they were effective. Um, what can change uh, is if. The security services, first of all, if, if, if officers high up in the security services uh, start to doubt whether they're going to come out on top, uh, and then if rank and file security officers uh, just resist the orders or, or just delay. I mean, it's, I, I think the way uh, that a state can lose effectiveness uh, is not just through people actively opposing and actively uh, uh, rejecting orders. They can just drag their feet at crucial moments. They can delay implementation. They can just fail to stop protesters at a certain point. And then and that, that's what happened. That's what happened in 1991, right? When the, uh, the the putsch leaders were calling on the army to suppress right. the Yeltsin protests, and the army refused. I think that was part of it. Yes, uh, but we see it in in many other places. So, like. Georgia uh, with Shevard Nazi, Akayev in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I mean, there've been a lot of uh, a lot of authoritarian regimes uh, which have melted down uh, within some months of seeming reasonably secure. If we think about uh, Suharto in Indonesia, uh, I mean, he looked he looked very secure a year before the end. Uh, but uh, the Asian financial crisis hit, protests uh, increased, uh, the Chinese business community uh, defected, and uh, all these things together changed the situation uh, so fundamentally that he ended up handing over authority to his uh, aide, uh, Habibi, who he hoped would uh, basically continue the regime as before. Uh, So uh, this isn't a, a, a pure fantasy that I've dreamed up here. It's something that's happened in different ways in, in various places. Uh, it just never seems like it's possible before it does. Do, do you think that this scenario, a critical ingredient for the success of this scenario, is, a, is an effective, um, charismatic opposition leader um, that, that could present an alternative um, to the um, uh, to the existing regime? And obviously that really doesn't exist right now unless, you know, Navalny is miraculously released from jail, uh, which seems very unlikely. No, I, I don't think that's crucial to meltdown. I mean, it may be cru- it may be helpful or important to building a democracy uh, or, you know, building any kind of uh, new regime after uh, the regime meltdown, melts down. But I think the kind of meltdown that I'm talking about uh, isn't led by anybody necessarily, or isn't isn't a choice of something else. It's just a failure of the machine that exists uh, to the point where uh, it gets destabilized and and the leader and and, and ultimate control uh, changes hands. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is to have uh, a well organized opposition, a civil society. Uh, an attractive uh, leader in the wings, all of that uh, would certainly help uh, with the creation of a democratic uh, successor regime. Um, But uh, 
I don't think that's. I don't think the forces that are necessary for that are exactly the same as the forces that can lead to disintegration of an authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian regime. So in the Soviet era, uh, you really did not have the military uh, play a big role in regime changes. So Khrushchev's um, ouster was mostly orchestrated by um, the party and, with the support of the KGB, uh, but not really the military. Um, Zhukov, I guess, helped with um, putting Beria out uh, uh, to pasture, uh, figuratively and literally. Uh, but, um, you, you know, that was just... Um, you know, mechanics in within the Kremlin right. to, to get him out uh, without the um, uh, the uh, security services intervene with that. But you do have a history of the military uh, causing or participating in revolutions before the Soviet times, right? Two of the revolutions uh, in 1917, the Bolshevik one and, and the provisional government that preceded it, uh, were uh, supported by the military that was demoralized uh after World War One and the disasters on the front, perhaps n- not unsimilar to what what is happening now with this war in Ukraine, we're seeing these letters that are being written uh, by different units complaining to their governors about the incompetence of their military commanders, about the losses they're suffering, the lack of equipment, material, and so forth. So, could you see a situation developing where? Um, there is an uprising within the military um, that um, brings pressure on the regime and potentially even supported by uh, maybe mid-level leader, um, sort of um, uh, a new uh, General Lebet, if you will, the famous uh, uh, general back in uh, uh, the 90s that uh, became quite quite a heroic f- uh, figure in the Russian political system and even challenged Putin, I mean, not Putin, but Yeltsin for the presidency in 1996, could that somehow emerge, um, uh, tapping into this massive dissatisfaction, uh, depression that you're seeing uh, in the military, within the conscripts, and, the, and even the right. the professional military right now? That's a really interesting question, and, and I'm not sure. Um, but I I doubt that. I mean, if we think about the the 1917 revolution, right? So the soldiers. Uh, uh, the the part of the military that did participate in the revolution was was rank and file soldiers primarily uh officers uh well many of those went over to the whites right and fought against the revolution um i i'd see i i can imagine uh, yeah I, 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 I meant um yeah. Uh, General Kornilov um, supported the provisional government, um, uh, right? That um, overthrew right. the yes. czar. So that's that's what I was yes. referring to. Yes. So they they split and uh, they got involved. That's right. Um, at the end of a, a, a war, uh, and we're now in a war. So um, so there could be a parallel. I don't. I don't really. I could be quite wrong, but I don't don't anticipate seeing. Uh, Russian military officers getting uh, getting deeply involved, but I could see the kind of discontent over mobilization and discontent within the armed forces at being poorly commanded and poorly supplied and uh, sent on basically suicide missions in some cases. I could see that. Uh, that just adding to this kind of long menu of crises and problems that uh, confront the Kremlin. And I, yes, I can see that as being part of the discontent. And, and really, you know, I, I think there are just many different elements of discontent, which could come together in opposing the current regime and Putin, uh, although they have nothing else in common. So it could be even some far right uh, advocates of uh, even uh, tougher fighting in Ukraine, uh, they could at least criticize the, the Kremlin. It could be uh, people within the military who feel that this was just commanded uh, uh, very poorly and that the military were blamed for the failures of the politicians and of Putin personally, then you have economic discontent throughout the country as if sanctions continue to bite and get worse. And if we see unemployment, uh, you you have anti-war groups, uh, people who uh, think the war is crazy and 
and uh, horrifically brutal and inhumane. Um, so you, you can see opposition potentially, and of course, to repeat, we're not there yet, but you could see opposition potentially uh, including all those different groups. Uh, so all of them can together erode the image of Putin and the Kremlin, um, even though they have very little in common um, or nothing in common. Um, and I think the discontent in the army uh, could certainly be a part of that. Also discontent of the, among the families of, of people who are mobilized or the families of, of uh, casualties uh, of war. Um, I think that's only beginning and I expect to see uh, over the coming months and uh, maybe longer uh, a political uh, a political impact of all those costs which Russia is now bearing uh, and which will become more and more salient, I think. One of the most effective um, uh, civil societies groups in the 1980s that contributed to um, the de- disintegration of the Soviet Union was the Soldiers' Mothers group um, that um, advocated uh, on behalf of the soldiers to try to end the, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, but, you know, listening to some of those mothers um, they are in charge of that group now, they, they, at least for now, seem very demoralized and, and don't think that they have much of an ability to pressure the regime. But as you say, that might change. One very last question for you, Daniel, and this has just been an absolutely fascinating discussion, but and I appreciate that this is entirely in the speculative category, but um, if Putin is replaced somehow, uh, who is your best bet on uh, on his replacement? Any thoughts there? Um, not on the... I'm not going to make a specific <laughs> prediction, uh, but here's what I would say. Uh, partly it'll depend on how the change comes about. There are scenarios in which Putin would try to hand over to somebody with greater credibility, with broader appeal, and that could be lots of lots of people. Um, that might well not work. And my guess is that uh, Russia would end up going to some sort of electoral process. Uh, I mean, the Constitution, even if it's between elections, the Constitution says that if the president uh, resigns, then the prime minister takes over, has three months and calls elections, uh, for, uh, new presidential elections. So I can see that being kind of a default that the different parties would uh, would agree to, uh, and then they would try and manipulate, um, but they might be balanced in a way that would make uh, manipulation imperfect. Uh, and the public might be quite mobilized at that point. Um, so then we might get somebody actually coming out of an electoral process. And that I can't predict. The only other thing I would say is that uh, looking at a very macro level, uh, it's unusual to see countries that are as economically developed uh, with as with as many highly educated people uh, with, uh, you know, the kind of society that has developed in Russia. It's unusual to see that uh, in a highly authoritarian regime with a few exceptions. Uh, The Gulf states uh, are very rich. Uh, They're not all that modern in other ways, female emancipation, female rights, uh, education levels, those things, uh, education levels have have improved in the Gulf, have have risen recently. But uh, so far, the Gulf states look rich, but not modernized. Uh, And then the other exception is Singapore, which has a highly educated, highly modern society, uh, but an authoritarian government. And uh, I think... uh, that's the only state that has managed to make authoritarianism work uh, with a very modern society. Now, Russia... Benevolent authoritarian. What, what about China, though? China is not as uh, economically developed in terms of per capita GDP, in terms of education levels uh, as, say, Singapore. Uh, China is getting 
into that range where uh, we'll see whether it can produce a model of authoritarianism that works with a highly modern society, or perhaps we'll see that it just stops modernizing. Um, China has obviously grown to an absolutely amazing extent. Uh, I think GDP per capita is around $15,000 a year now. Uh, so if it gets higher, then yes, we get into we get into the range uh, where authoritarianism becomes rarer. Uh, education levels uh, are still not that high in China. They're rising. Um, and China is also a bit unusual because it has these enclaves of modernity, obviously Hong Kong, but also I would say Beijing, Shanghai. Uh, but then they have the rest of the country, which is far less modern, uh, lower incomes, lower education levels, uh, still yeah, uh, 20 or 30 years behind in some ways. So uh, can Russia become Singapore? Well, probably not. Uh, my guess is that if there were some period uh, of you know, major rupture, uh, although the break itself uh, might be chaotic and uh, even violent, uh, the best prediction would be some sort of move towards a more open political process, not pure democracy, but something uh, more participatory, uh, with more checks and balances uh, than obviously the the Putin regime today, maybe a slightly less managed democracy, as as Putin calls it, right? Yes, yes. Well, a, a flawed democracy. I, I could see it going back to something around uh, the uh, turn of the millennium, so around two thousand uh, or two thousand one, two thousand two, just as Putin was starting off. It was a democracy with clear flaws. Uh, but it was a very different system from what we see today. Well, that was uh, Daniel Treisman. Uh, the article is What Could Bring Putin Down in Foreign Affairs? Highly encourage everyone to read it. Daniel, thank you so much. This was absolutely insightful and uh, really, really interesting to explore these potential um, uh, really important changes that might be happening in Russia. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.